1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a continuation of what Paul is telling the Corinthian church and us with regard to the nature of men, women included, but mankind uh, as a whole. And in chapter 2, he talked about two different kinds of individuals, those who are natural men and women and those who are spiritual men and women. And the difference is, obviously, the spiritual have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The natural man does not. And because the natural person doesn't have the Spirit of God, the natural person can't understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him or her, and he can't know them because they're spiritually discerned, Paul tells us. And so that's where we ended the chapter last time. And now in chapter 3, he's going to elaborate on more detail with regard to the spiritual person. And in that discussion, Paul is going to break up the spiritual person into two groups, just like he did in chapter 2 with a natural man and spiritual man. He's going to do that with the spiritual man who is truly spiritual and the spiritual man who isn't quite there yet. Now, before we get into that study tonight, I want to preface this by saying that Paul is addressing Christians at Corinth. In chapter 1, his introduction to this letter, Paul said that he's writing this letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified. Now, sanctification cannot happen unless you are born again. And he says, not only are they sanctified, but they're called to be saints, holy ones. So there is a sense in which these people that are Christians, filled with the Spirit of God, and by the way, he'll also say in verse 5 of chapter 1, that they were enriched in everything by having received the Holy Spirit, in all utterance, and all knowledge, so they had the gifts of the Spirit manifest in the church at Corinth. They were indeed Christians. However, they had issues, and Paul had begun to address some of those issues in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he talked about the fact that there was a division, sectarianism. Some were saying, I am of Apollos. Some said, I am of Paul. Some said, I am of Cephas. Some even said, I am of Jesus. And they all seem to be indicating that everybody else is wrong and we're right. Sectarianism is that kind of uh, error that enters into the church when the church becomes exclusive compared to the other churches that may be around them. Exclusive and not willing to admit that they don't have it all perfectly right, but they believe that they do have the word of God, they believe that they do have the truth, and everybody else is lacking in that area. And because they lack in those areas of truth that this particular group of individuals focus on, then they're deemed to be something less than or even excluded from Christianity. Well, Paul is here addressing in chapter 3 some degree of that sort of thing continuing in the Corinthian church, and he needs to address it. And by addressing it, he addresses the issue of spirituality. And so in verse 1, he tells the Corinthian church this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now that word carnal comes from the Greek word sarx, which is flesh. 
And so in some of your translations, it just simply says, uh, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to fleshly people. And so he's telling the individuals here in Corinth that they really don't have it all together. Even though the gifts of the Spirit are in operation in the church, even though they have been blessed tremendously by the teachings of men like Apollos and Paul and others who had come and shared the gospel message with them, they were not getting beyond this issue of envy between one group and another and cause strife. And so he's going to say in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. Why? In verse 3 he says, for you are still fleshly or still carnal, for there are envy and strife and divisions among you. And when there are such things as envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Aren't you just like the natural man that I described in chapter 2? Of course, he didn't say chapter because he didn't have chapters and verses in the writing of this letter. But in any case, Paul is saying, I have just described to you the difference between natural and spiritual, but I need you to understand that not everyone who is in the category of spiritual is really fully taking advantage of the wonderful blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to make us to be good, solid Christians and able then to understand the whole counsel of God, able to comprehend with the apostle as he teaches them what he refers to here in verse 3 as the meat, solid food. Instead of giving them solid food, he had been there with them for about a year and a half, teaching them what he refers to as the milk of the word. Now, Peter tells us in his first letter that it's a good thing to desire the sincere milk of the word. There's nothing wrong with milk. It's good in and of itself. But it's fundamental. It's basic. It's really not everything that they should know, everything that they should want to know about God's word. And Paul couldn't relate to them all those deeper things, the meat of the word, because they wouldn't have been able to comprehend it. They weren't ready for it. Now, the writer of Hebrews also talks to the church in that day that the letter of Hebrews was written, which is written primarily to Jews who were dispersed among the Gentiles. And in that letter to the Hebrews, the author writes some very, very important things with regard to uh, the milk that Paul is describing here. So in Hebrews chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me, we'll read from verse 1, the portion of Scripture that talks about those things, um, to this Jewish Christian church that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, or rudimentary in some translations, principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That's the goal. You've got the simple things down. You need to progress further in your understanding, in your faith, in your wisdom that God wants to give to you, and in your comprehension of the Word of God. 
He's suggesting very strongly, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance. That was a foundational concept. That's part of the milk that Paul was talking about. The foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Everyone knew that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They understood that principle. They understood that they were saved by grace through faith, that it was a gift of God, that not of themselves, lest any man should boast. They had that down. That was simple milk of the word. It was an elementary principle. He says in verse 2, and also of the doctrine of baptisms. And you notice he says baptisms, plural, and there is one baptism that we experience in terms of our salvation that we receive from the hand of God. We're baptized into faith by, by the Spirit of God. Now, it's not referring to the baptism that we perform in the waters when we go into the water and become uh, baptized, immersed as a identification with Christ, as we so often tell you. But here, the writer of Hebrews refers to both concepts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism that we perform as an expression of our faith. Those are elementary things. He goes on and continues to say, and on the laying on of hands. Now, we don't really see a whole lot of laying on of hands in the modern church, although we do it from time to time in our church when we pray for somebody. The laying on of hands doesn't really accomplish anything in terms of bringing healing. It is not a miraculous thing that is passed on from one believer to the next by the laying on of hands. It's basically a means by which we can identify with the one who is being prayed for and laying on our hands is, is, is part of what we do to basically encourage and pray according to the word of God, knowing that it's not the laying on of the hands, but faith that heals the sick. So it's a doctrine of laying on of hands. It was a doctrine that they considered to be elementary. It's just simply part of what we do when we pray for one another. The doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are rudimentary or elementary doctrines that every Christian, baby Christian, or an elder should have down specifically with the understanding of the purpose and the means by which we appropriate those blessings that are ours as we come to understand those elementary doctrinal statements. We have become founded and grounded in the Word of God. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and we believe in eternal judgment, eternal life of the believer. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and this we will do if God permits, in verse 3. So he goes on to talk a bit about the, uh, the, the details of what he wants to present to the people of the nation of the Jews who are believers dispersed among all of the Christians. It's important that you understand that the writer of Hebrews is reprimanding them because they should have gone much further than they had. And you would see that if you were to continue reading in chapter 6. Here in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, if you'll turn back there with me now, uh, Paul isn't reprimanding them as much as the writer of Hebrews reprimands the, the uh, Jewish believers. However, it is a reprimand in a sense that 
they should also have progressed further, but they haven't. It is not telling them that they're in trouble because of it, but he's telling them that they need to address those things that limit them from being able to understand and comprehend and receive greater depth in understanding of the Word of God. If they continue with envy and strife, which cause divisions, and by the word, in ver- by the way, in verse three, um, in some of your translations, it just says envy and strife. But divisions are implied and talked about by Paul as he continues on in this uh, chapter. So we've just read in chapter six of the book of Hebrews what those elementary doctrines are typically, and Paul has addressed those with the Christians at Corinth. He wants to go further with them. He wants them to understand more, but he's got to address these issues before he can really get further into the meat that he wants to bring to them. And he will do that, both discuss the problems and give them far more depth of understanding than they have had up to this point. So again, he says in verse 3, you are still fleshly or carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And continuing on in verse 4, he tells us, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So again, he's saying, this is an expression of your carnality when you develop these strivings and envyings that cause problems in the church because one says, I am a follower of Paul, and those who follow Apollos are off track, and they need to correct themselves, or they need to repent even, possibly, they're thinking. They're arguing with one another because of their sectarianism. We have that in many denominations as well. And there is a problem when one denomination says to another denomination, In our day, we've got it right, you do not. And whatever the argument may be, it may be with regard to the Sabbath day. It may be with regard to baptisms. There are some who teach baptismal regeneration, which we would not agree with. And we do not teach baptismal regeneration because we believe it is by faith in Christ Jesus that we confess our sins to the Lord God, and he forgives us of our sins. It is Jesus only and nothing more. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus a particular day of worship. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus and him crucified. Paul had said that in chapter 1, if you'll recall. I want to know nothing among you save Jesus and him crucified. So Paul is saying, look, you're envyings, your strivings have to cease. You're causing problems in the church because of your identifying with one person or another. After all, he says in verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers, that's another word for servant, ministers through whom you believe, not in whom, but through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. Paul gave this word to The people in Corinth, Apollos came along and gave additional information to them, and they both were ministering to the Corinthian church in a very, very unique and special way 
but one wasn't better than the other as far as the message was concerned. It was the message that they were both conveying, not the messengers that was important. And that's what Paul is saying. He says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God, and I love that phrase, but God, here it is again, but God gave the increase. It's God's responsibility to take what the messenger has given and bless the people with it and encourage the people with it and strengthen their understanding and knowledge and resolve to love one another and serve God the way that they should. This is what God has done. God's spirit in them is the reason they were able to apprehend, the reason they were able to comprehend the things that Paul and Apollos was teaching them. But Paul and Apollos were just simply messengers. Paul brought the message first. He says, I planted. Apollos came along after and watered that which was planted. And God gave the increase. Now, these are agricultural terms that Paul is using here. So very familiar in the New Testament where we see Jesus and others, Apostle, the Apostle Paul and John and also James, they, they use familiar concepts, the, the, the way that plants grow, for instance, in this case, to express spiritual truths. Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. It's God who brought forth the fruit. And that's what he always has done, and that's what he always will continue to do. Verse 7 says, So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, and he says it again, but God who gives the increase. And, just in case they didn't get it, he goes on in verse 8 to say, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, Paul is an apostle. Apollos was a man who was very well versed in the scriptures and was a wonderful teacher. But Paul recognizes that both of them had something specific that God had given them to share. And nobody should be looking at either of them as something special because they were just servants. They were just doing what God had called them to do. And he who plants and he who waters are one in the sense that they both had the same responsibility of bringing the word of God to the people in Corinth. And God blessed that. And God made it so that that word was bringing forth much fruit. And in that, Paul says, both he and Apollos have a reward for having been faithful to what God had called them to do. He says again in verse 8, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And then he goes on to talk about those rewards in the sense of not agricultural pictures, but a construction. He says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So Paul is saying, look, I have the foundation which is Jesus Christ that I have been like a master builder building upon. And it's so very, very important that we all understand that the foundation is Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, 
The Catholic Church is an example of those that teach differently, that Peter is the foundation of the church. And they base that upon Jesus' words to Peter when Peter confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus' response to Peter was that the Father has given this, not flesh, but the Father has given this unto you. And upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. Well, the word rock that Jesus was using, translated from the original Greek language, the Greek word is Petra, and it means a large stone. Peter's name was given to Peter by Jesus, and the name Peter in the Greek word language is Petros, little rock. So there's a difference when Jesus was saying to Peter, the little rock, upon this Petra, big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, he's referring not to Peter, but to the rock, the big stone, the huge edifice, the El Capitan. What is he talking about? The rock that he's referring to is not Peter, it's the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the foundation, and Peter himself will say that he is that foundation, that sure foundation. There is no question that Peter never considered himself to be the foundation of the church. That's just an error that is being propagated by modern-day Christianity in those circles. Paul is saying here that he has built upon that foundation. And there is no other foundation upon which we can put anything as we're building the church of Jesus Christ. But he says also in that verse 10 that another builds on that same building that he had built, adding to it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So there's an issue that Paul is addressing here, a caution, if you will, that those who attempt to teach the word of God do so rightly dividing the word of God. We'll see that Paul emphasizes that through one of his letters to Timothy, and that it has to be upon that foundation, which is Christ Jesus. No other foundation, he says in verse 11, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So he's emphasizing this, making sure they understand that he and Apollos and everybody else who would come after them must indeed follow this very, very basic principle of doctrinal statements that are being made on behalf of the Lord. We take that seriously today in our church and in many, many other churches. We're not the only church on the block. There are many other churches where God's word is being taught and believed, and I'm grateful for that. Many other denominations I consider myself so very, very fortunate to have spent time in several different denominations over the course of the years that I've been a believer. I guess you could call me a Nazabaptocostal pastor. Nazabaptocostal. I can't even put it all together. There are many different denominations that I've actually been a part of. The Nazarene Church, the Baptist Church, the Pentecostal Church, and now the Calvary Chapel Ministries. All of them have good Bible teaching ministers 
that believe in and trust in and teach the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God. And I have been blessed to be under the tutelage of very, very fine and wonderful mentors who gave me the understanding that I have been given by them through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what I desire to convey to all of you. It's It's so important that we understand that we are indeed just ministers. There's nothing in me, there's nothing in anyone else that you should ever look at and put on a pedestal. May that never be. We're just simply servants of the living God. Verse 12 continues in the building concept, and he says, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, or stubble, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, what's Paul talking about here, the day? Well, it's the day that we stand before Jesus. We talked about the fact that we all would be hopefully raptured sometime in the near future. That was one person's statement here tonight as we before we started our uh, study. And that is true. We do look forward to that. We look forward to being with all of the other believers. And when we do, we're going to be facing the Lord Jesus in a judgment that will take place for the believers only, exclusively for believers. Now, we call this the Bema Seat because Paul addresses it as such in the second letter of Corinthians. So if you'll turn to chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, let's look briefly at what Paul says there about this very same topic that he's just introduced in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He says in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, beginning with verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul is saying there that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That word judgment in the original Greek is bima. And the bima seat was part of the Olympic Games in the Greek culture. It was a place where the person who would proclaim who the winner of a race or event is, he is the basically judge of the games. And he gives rewards based upon the particular game that was involved, whether it was a running sport or wrestling or whatever the sport might have been. That carries on into our modern day Olympics where we have awards that are given to the three best of the particular event. They give out a gold, a silver, and a bronze medal. There in the Greek games, originally it was a wreath given to the winner. And they really worked hard for that perishable wreath. But it was a reward. It was a way of stating to all of those who were in attendance at the games, this one individual was the victor. This one individual stands above the rest. And this is his reward for his accomplishment. That's what the Bema seat was for, for handing out rewards. 
And that's what Paul is using that phrase, the judgment seat of Christ, as we found it in 2 Corinthians, or better translated, the Bema seat of Christ. And it is there that Paul is referring to with regard to what he has spoken in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. So if you'll turn back to chapter 3 again, looking at verse 12, read it with me once more. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, the day of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, if you noticed, he's talking about various kinds of results from the works that we do. Some works will present to the Lord in that day gold and silver and precious stones. But the works that we will have done that are pleasing to God will stand out in that very same way as precious elements, gold, silver, and precious stones. But there will be other things that we will have been doing in our life through our attempting to work the works that God calls us to do Sometimes we miss the mark. Sometimes we don't quite get it right. Sometimes we do things that we thought were for the Lord, but really he had nothing to do with it. It was more for our benefit, and we basically missed God's purpose and plan because we've done things that we shouldn't have done, or we didn't do things that we should have done. Read chapter 7 of Romans and you'll find that that's what Paul had said about himself. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death, he had said. Because he recognized the fact that there were things that he wanted to do that he did not do, and there were things that he did do that he did not want to do. And he realized that it was the flesh and not the spirit that led him in those directions. Here Paul is saying that anyone who has works like that have developed those works and they will result in what he describes here as wood, hay, and stubble, or wood, hay, and uh, straw, and they will burn in the fire. The precious stones won't burn, the gold and silver won't burn, but the wood, hay, and stubble will be completely eliminated. God doesn't want any of that. He wants perfect, blameless, spotless, without blemish, saints standing before him. So all of that stuff that wasn't really what God wanted for us, that'll be wiped out. It isn't an issue of salvation. It is an issue of reward. Please don't misunderstand that. This is just a coming before the Lord to receive rewards for what we have done in our body, good or bad. Unbelievers will be judged at a later time, according to Revelation, in that great white throne judgment of God that will be for the unbelievers only. And there, the books will be opened and they will be judged with regard to what is written in those books. And the fact that their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life indicates that they were never saved. And because they were never saved, their judgment is going to be based on what they did with regard to their ultimate destiny. And God's judgment in the great white throne judgment is to show them that they cannot enter into God's presence for eternity 
because they rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's not what's being spoken of here. Make it very, very clear in your minds. He's talking about rewards. And that's why he continues to say, if anyone, in verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, a loss of reward, but he himself will still be saved, yet so as through fire. The Bema seat is for that one purpose alone. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is a very, very important aspect of who we are in Christ, what God has done for us. Talked about the fact that we're building on a foundation and the church is indeed continuing to build upon that foundation and it will continue to do so until he comes. But here he talks about another building, the temple. And we are that temple. We who are believers, including the people that he's addressing in Corinth, those who were only fleshly or carnal Christians, they too were part of this, which is what Paul is saying here in verse 16, that we are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in us who believe. Verse 17 says, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now that word destroy is a very harsh word. It is better translated corrupt. God will bring to corruption that person, but it's really not talking about salvation here either. It's talking about the body. Paul will later talk about a man who is sinning greatly in Corinth. And he needed to address that sin. And he says about that man that he is going to deliver that one over to Satan for the destruction of his body. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. And they were early Christians, Jews, living in Jerusalem. And the book of Acts tells us that they had sold their property. And like everybody else was doing, they brought the earnings from the sale of that property to the saints, the apostles, and laid those earnings at the feet of the apostles so that they could be distributed among those who were believers. So Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit by saying, we sold the property for such and such an amount, but he held back a certain amount. And his wife agreed with him, and they separately presented this untruth before Peter. And Peter's response was that you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they both died. Now, I can't honestly tell you that they were not saved. I believe that they were saved. God took their bodies at that time because they had misrepresented themselves before the church. And the early church needed to understand, and hopefully we all understand, that you just don't go around lying to the Holy Spirit without consequence. It was a serious crime that needed to be dealt with, and God destroyed them. But I don't believe he 
sent their souls to hell. I believe that they were Christians. They just lost their bodies, their life at that time. There may be others who would argue that point, and I suppose it's not really something that we need to be emphatic upon, but I express this as my opinion that they were saved and that their bodies were destroyed, as Paul indicates here in chapter 3 of verse uh, 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 seven, verse 17 of chapter 3, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. That the Spirit of God might be glorified. The temple of God is holy, and we are to be holy. That's the point that Paul is making. Let us never forget that. He called them saints, holy ones, sanctified, being purified, being redeemed is part of the process that God is doing in each and every one of us. But we need to understand that it requires something on our part to desire not just the milk of the word, but the meat of the word. To desire to know God's will in our lives. And you can't know God's will until you've really learned what the word of God does say. And he does say a lot about everything that we might encounter in this life. Just go to the Word of God and seek the Spirit's wisdom and understanding whenever we have a question that we don't really know how to answer. We can find it in God's Word. And that's the depth of understanding that He is willing to convey to each and every believer. The Spirit of God dwells in you and in me for that purpose. He's our teacher. He's our guide. He instructs us, He comforts us, and He leads us in all truth. That's what Jesus told the disciples. He will lead you in all truth, and He will remind you of everything that I have told you, He told His disciples. So Paul is saying that we are a building, the church, and we're part of that building process, and we're part of the field that seed is being planted in and we are part of the watering of the seed that has been planted and some of us are planting seed as well and it's still an ongoing process. It's still happening in the modern day. Albeit, it's difficult to find here in America. But in other places of the world, there is a move of the Holy Spirit that is taking place just like in the book of Acts. As you read those pages of uh, the miracles that were taking place in Acts, and you wonder, well, Lord, is that happening? It is. may not be in our neighborhood. Perhaps it will. It may not be now. Perhaps it will later. If the Lord tarries, my prayer is that we would see a move of the Holy Spirit such as we have not known, but always in line with what the Word of God declares. There's a lot of fleshly activity going on in the churches. A lot of pseudo-Christianity, if you will. It's pseudo-Christianity because it's not based upon God's truth. We need to rely on the Spirit of God and it is by the Spirit of God, not by might, not by power. He's the one who draws all men unto himself. He's the one that glorifies Jesus. We are just vessels we are just instruments, and may we be vessels of honor and instruments of righteousness and laborers in a harvest so that God will be glorified and his church will be filled. Until 
the fullness of Gentiles is come in, and I believe that's right around the corner. We have work to do. The light is still to be shining. It is still day. There's coming a day when it will be night, and there will be no more opportunity. But that's when I believe that God is going to take this church out of the world. The Spirit of God will still be present, but His work in the church will have been complete because the fullness of Gentiles will have come in. I don't know how many God has in mind, but I do know that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But it's also true that God has a number in mind. And if it were not so, then the phrase fullness of Gentiles wouldn't make any sense. It's going to happen. The last person to be saved will be saved and will be gone. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, just as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Taken up to be with him, there we shall ever be with the Lord. Continuing on in the rest of the chapter, Paul goes back to this concept of wisdom that he's been describing throughout chapter 2 and now ends chapter 3 with by saying this in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, be fools for Christ. Nothing wrong with that. Fools in the eyes of the world, but in God's eyes, wise. If you seem to be wise in this age, become a fool. If the people around you who aren't Christian think of you as somebody with great wisdom, you're probably not really showing all of what you should show with regard to the gospel. He says, become a fool that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, and he quotes here Job chapter 5, verse 11, I believe it is, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And that is true still today. He catches the wise who think themselves wise in their own craftiness. How many times have you seen somebody who thinks himself to be really very important and having something very wise to say ends up finding later on that what he had to say was not true at all, and he becomes humiliated by it. That happens more often than not. Verse 20 uses another quote from the Old Testament, this time from Psalm 94. In verse 20 he says, And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They have no real standing before God if they think themselves to be wise without the power of the Holy Spirit. As far as God's concerned, they are fools. They think us to be fools, but they've got it backwards, in other words. So verse 21 continues to the end of the chapter, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Let that sink in. All things are yours. Things, whatever things are. And there's this thing and that thing. Just ask Tracy. She knows all about things. But listen, all things are yours. That means everything, everything is yours. God has multitudes of blessings that he is pouring out upon his people. All things are yours. He says in verse 22, whether of Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the word or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. This word of God is so rich, so full of promises. They are all yours. 
if it's Paul who has delivered them to you, if it's Peter who has spoken them to you, if it is the Spirit of God, if it is life experiences or death experience, all are yours. I like that. And it's true. We need to apprehend it. We need to take hold of this and live it out in our lives. And finally, in verse 23, and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Note the connection. Remember in John chapter 17, the prayer of Jesus to his heavenly Father? He said, I want them to be one as you and I are one. I in you, you in me, and we in them. All are yours, including Christ, including the Father. They are all yours, including the teachers of the Word of God, the writers of the New Testament, including all the promises that those writers conveyed to us. All are yours. O oh, people of God, we have such a rich treasure before us. Let us lay hold of these things and let us be mindful of the warning that Paul gives to the Corinthian church and to us. That which would keep us from taking advantage of all of these benefits is those things that cause strife, envyings, and divisions. And there is more that he's going to address, issues that Paul will address in the ensuing chapters that would hinder the effectiveness of the Spirit of God in our lives. But they're all ours. They're all available. We just need to know how to apprehend. And Paul is going to explain that as he moves forward in this wonderful book. God bless you till the next time, my friends. Grace and peace.